Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live at Calvary Church in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media or to tune into our live stream services, visit us online at calvaryco.church or download our free Calvary Church app. Now here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Amen. Take your Bibles, open them to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, as we start a new chapter in our verse-by-verse study of Acts, and the title of our Bible study today is No One is Beyond the Reach of God. And it's something we just need to acknowledge and hold fast to the truth that no one's beyond the reach of God. And certainly, I think we can survey our lives and our families today and at least find one person that we have thought is beyond the reach of God. Like you just look at them and you say, no way, they will never believe in Jesus. They will never change their life. And I'm sure there's a battle too inside of us. It's not like we want to think that. It's not like we wake up in the morning, like who can we write off today? But when we examine their lives and our interactions with them, they are just so messed up and so internally damaged that they have such hard hearts that the bottom line is it would take a miracle to save them. And that's exactly the work that God does. When we come to that conclusion, it's exactly what God does. Salvation is always miraculous. It requires a work of God in their lives. And so you may have a friend that doesn't know God and really you can't ever see them in church praying. You never see them carrying a Bible But it's great to be reminded today that no one is beyond the reach of God. No one, not one person. And while we might write someone off, and God forgive us for that, God never writes anyone off. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And truly, sometimes the people that we think are so far away are actually a lot closer than we think. They're right there on the edge. And as you're inviting people to church and they say no, it's important that we learn to lovingly, consistently, and persistently be used of God and available to God to pursue them. You know, because their response sometimes is like, you know, I, I know you found God, you needed God, I don't quite need God. Because there's a hardness and a wall that's been built up, a wall of resistance, but ultimately what it is, is it's just a wall of pride. And pride is, very, is a wall that's hard to tear down. Uh, it's hard to tear down if you're on the outside of it, and it's especially hard to tear down if you're on the inside of it. But God loves to use his word and the loving care of men and women to tear the wall down and bring a person to a place of conviction of sin, even with great resistance. I mean, there was always great resistance. I remember as a new believer, as I was sharing the gospel with people I was working with, they weren't so excited that I became a Christian and they definitely weren't excited to hear any of the messages or any of the words that I had to share with them. And I remember specifically on one occasion, as I was walking from the office to the parking lot where my car was, one guy was particularly upset with me, walked up to me, knocked my Bible out of my hand and said, take that Bible boy. And you know, he's very, he, he, it's, it's really good that we didn't take, Bible Boy didn't jump all over that guy in the parking lot because I was super close to the old Ed back then and very upset. But there was that resistance 
of, I, I don't want anything to do. It might be good for you, but I don't want anything to do with whatever you're into, especially if it's the Bible or God. And there's just so much resistance. Sometimes those, though, that protest the most and argue the most and put up the biggest defense are actually very, very close to the kingdom of God. Let me step back just for a moment and allow you here today to consider that some listening to me were the very ones giving that resistance. Some listening to me were the very ones that were on the other side of that. You were the one knocking the Bible out of my hands and calling me Bible boy to keep me away. And maybe not me, but there was that girl in your life, Bible girl, Bible boy, Bible thumper, all the names you could think of. That was you. And what did God do? but pull you out of the miry clay and rescue you from the pit and set your feet on solid ground. If not you, somewhere in the heritage of your family that happened. Somewhere along the way, God intervened in your family line to bring it about as it is this day, salvation has entered your home. And you may have fallen into that category of people that thought you would never amount to anything a drain on society, a pain in your family, a strain in the neighborhood, but now you have a testimony, a story of God's work in your life. And it's interesting, in our little family of churches, known as Calvary Chapel, it's not exclusive to our family of churches, but because it's our family, I'm very familiar with many of the men that God called to fill the pulpits of Calvary Chapels around the world. And when Pastor Chuck set out to write, Pastor Chuck Smith was the founder, the, God, the man that God used to start Calvary Chapel. When he went to put in writing some of the testimonies of that first generation of men that launched off to plant and pastor churches, he wrote it this way in the subtitle of his book, he wrote, and I quote, gang members, drug addicts, mental patients, society's rejects. Chuck Smith's amazing story of Calvary Chapel and the unlikely leaders that God called. But it didn't start with Chuck Smith. It started with God. In the first century, Paul writes to the church in Corinth and he says, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. And the base things of the world, the things that are despised, God has chosen. And the things that are not. To bring to nothing the things that are so that no flesh should glory in his presence. And I hope by now I've made my case that no one is beyond the reach of God. However, we meet a guy that if he was alive in our day with the testimony that we read of today, we may conclude the guy needs to be eliminated. He doesn't need to be saved, although we might have that because we might be in that sense of, you know, I still want to be a follower of Christ and I still want to hope all things and believe all things. And so, Lord... Save him, but if you don't save him, wipe him out because he's doing great damage and he's causing great difficulty. And we meet a man by the name of Saul. Notice in verse one, it says in chapter nine, then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and he asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. 
So we're reintroduced now to the powerful, famous, and really infamous Saul of Tarsus. And this again is one of those places, one of those texts where you just have to suspend what you already know is going to happen to him and let it happen real time. Saul is a very huge part of the damage that families are feeling in Jerusalem in this moment. You'll remember Stephen, as we've studied earlier, had an opportunity before the religious leaders to share the gospel and to answer all these false accusations. And instead of defending himself, he took the opportunity and the occasion to share the gospel. It was a powerful history lesson of the nation of Israel, of each of the patriarchs that God has shown himself faithful up into Messiah, who was murdered by these very religious rulers. The reward for his stunning message was that they took up stones to kill him. And they, like they did with Jesus, murdered Stephen. Saul was there, casting his vote and lot into this murderous rage. He was there hearing every single word. He was here receiving, he was there receiving everything that was being said, watching it all go down. And it affected him. Now, Saul of Tarsus was a Roman by citizenship, highly educated within the Greek system. He knew Roman law, was familiar with Greek philosophies, but he was also Jewish. And he was raised with a strong religious foundation, so much so that he became a Pharisee. Now, when you think of Pharisee, I know by the time that Jesus comes on the scene and we're introduced to the Pharisees, they had long left their foundation but the Pharisees were a very conservative group of men who dedicated themselves to diligent study of the Bible. They started out well, but by the time Jesus came, they had long left their love of God, their true, pure love of God, and their commitment to the word, and they became very religious and controlling and political and all about the money, unfortunately, and resistant to the truth of Jesus. Well, that was Saul. He was committed to the word of God. And he lived as a Pharisee, becoming a part of the Sanhedrin, the part of the religious rulers. And today we meet him as exhibit one, as someone who we could conclude would never get saved. I mean, he's responsible for all the upheaval in Jerusalem. He's responsible for all the difficulties. I mean, if you think about it, we kind of read over it really quickly here, but he goes to the high priest. He's so upset he goes to the high priest and asks for authority to continue to do damage outside of Jerusalem. Hey, I want to go to Damascus, and if I meet any Christians along the way, I want to destroy their lives. I want to arrest them. I want to remove them. But but this little little thought, like you you don't want to miss this, God puts it in there for us. In verse 2, he says that he wants to take care of them, and notice, whether men or women, I mean, this is a religious ruler, one that would uphold the love of God, and in his misplaced religious zeal, is willing not only to arrest men, but to hurt women, which is extremely contrary to the heart of God. I mean, he's in a murderous rage. That's what really is being described here in verse 1, still breathing. I mean, if you think about this illustration with breathing, you and I breathe 24 hours a day, seven days a week. There isn't a time when we stop breathing. 
It is an involuntary, continual action in our lives. And it also implies breathing in, you know, inhaling, exhaling, inhaling, exhaling. And Saul is described as inhaling and exhaling murder, hatred from within sight of him, threats. It really speaks like breathing does, of his whole life. He is a man consumed with the destruction of this religious sect. You you could literally feel it in his presence. It was palpable. You could see it. You could feel it. It was his manner of life. Something snapped in Saul at the stoning of Stephen. As they were laying the coats at his feet, he was shaken in his own beliefs. And this happens many times in people's lives. Like, it's not a lack of knowledge. It's a wall of pride. It's not a lack of understanding, although there are some things to be explained and questions to answer for sure. But it's really an unwillingness to separate themselves from themselves. The battle is often selfishness. For Saul, he knew what Stephen said was true. He knew it. He knew as he was listening, he would have to agree, have to agree, have to agree, and then bringing him all the way to the conclusion, he wouldn't. It's not that he couldn't agree, it's that he wouldn't agree with the conclusion. Again, we don't have time to develop that particular thought right now, but I just want you to consider so many times in your own life, when you're confronted with a truth, it's not that you can't believe, it's that you won't believe. And what great damage that brings to your life. It's not like you're unable. You've done it before. It's not like you don't ascend to it. It's not like you don't understand it. It's not like you haven't stepped out in faith before. You're just in a place today where you won't. And it brings great damage, even greater damage. This episode in Acts chapter 9 is so significant that in the book of Acts, it's repeated three times. Three times In Acts chapter 26, Paul would describe himself this way in verse 11. He said, And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme, being exceedingly enraged against them. I persecuted them even to foreign cities. That's what he's doing right now. Breathing threats and murder is defined as being exceedingly enraged, making people blaspheme, and persecuted them even to foreign cities. And if you imagine the scene that day, you know, just think of this this moment, he's on his way to Damascus. I mean, it's hard to conceive that you look at this whole thing from the outside and say, you know what, Saul? You're a couple moments from getting saved. You're just a few moments. Like your life is about to change And we wouldn't be able to say that because we don't see what's going on on the inside. There's so much going on that we just don't see what God is doing among us. And for Saul, this was the last thing he planned on this day was to yield his life to Jesus. So not content with the stoning of Stephen, he's now willing to go 150, 200 miles up to Damascus and disrupt all of the believers that he finds on the way. Which, by the way, if he decided to take the shorter route, then he would find himself heading through Samaria, 
which remember, we learn there's a great revival going on in Samaria because God sent Philip there with the gospel. So along the way, he's just going to be enraged and enraged and enraged and enraged. Now, before we get to verse 3, I want you to mark this phrase in verse 2, if you haven't already. The believers right now are not known as Christians. That's going to happen later. But notice how they are described by Saul. They were of the way. That was their description. Even today, churches will use uh, the phrase the way or the way fellowship or the way congregation to describe themselves as a gathering of Jesus followers. And I believe this is a direct reference to the very statement of Jesus. Remember when he described himself? John chapter 14 in verse six, he declares, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except me, through me. So here, the followers of Jesus at this stage are just known as followers of the way, which could be, as you'll notice in the New King James, uh, the word way is capitalized, which speaks of perhaps they're personifying it, that it meant a personification. They were following Jesus. He was the way. I love that. Now, verse 3. Now, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. And then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? So he's near Damascus now, almost there. And then mark this word. Again, if you like to write in your Bibles, you want to mark it on your phone or your iPad, I want you to mark this, the word suddenly. It's a beautiful reminder of how fast God can work in your life. Now, we know things can change very suddenly. Often, we'll think of uh, sudden changes as some of the negative things that have happened in our lives. Where we wake up, we live life you know, on Monday, and things change so suddenly on Tuesday. Things change with a phone call, with a text message, with an email. Uh, Things can change suddenly. However, things can also change suddenly for the positive. Things can change very quickly. We, We don't know when things will change. So when God has us in a position of waiting, we're waiting for that. When we experience it, all the time we've been waiting will be forgotten because God can work suddenly. He can work suddenly in salvation in the lives of people that you love. Saul, if you were looking at him from the outside, you would have never been able to predict this was the moment. Suddenly, within 100 miles, 150 miles, Saul, your life will be completely, radically changed. And so suddenly, God intervenes. This light suddenly appears. Again, in chapter 26, Paul the Apostle, and sometimes if I say Saul or Paul and you're new to studying the Bible, you're going to like, which guy is it? It's the same guy. So if I say Paul, it's by accident because later his name's going to be changed. Right now we know him as Saul, but mostly we know this man as Paul the Apostle. His name adapted after, after he is saved. Right now we know him as Saul, and here Saul is interrupted as he nears Damascus, which you can think, you know, as you're getting closer and closer to to your destination, like he is just ready to just unleash it. But God was ready for him. And here he is. To Agrippa later in chapter 26, he says that the light was brighter than the sun. 
and it stops him here dead in his tracks. He falls to the ground and he hears a voice and the voice is asking him a question. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Don't miss that word me. This is a personal encounter. If you have a Bible that is a red letter edition, the red letters reflect the words of Jesus. You'll notice that these are in red letters. It was Jesus Christ that met him personally here nearing Damascus. And what we learn here in verse four is that Jesus reveals a very sweet and unique relationship with his church. I like that. It's good to be reminded of that. When Jesus views his church, he sees himself in it, in us, among us today. There's a deep spiritual connection between you and Jesus and us as a local congregation. Jesus is the head of the church and he is personally pained by the herd of his flock. It's kind of like when you stub your toe in the middle of the night and what hurts when you stub your toe? It seems like everything hurts. You just hit your toe on the corner of a table, but it just shoots throbbing pain through your body. Or if you have a headache, it debilitates you. It's isolated in your head, but it debilitates the rest. It just makes you miserable and frustrated. And Jesus associates with the pains that you experience, especially when people come against you. And that is a familiar refrain in all of us, the difficulties with others, especially as it relates to the difficulties you and I experience because of our faith in Christ. The resistance that we get in our culture or in our family. And so Jesus meets him and he says, why are you persecuting me? I mean, it's a, an important question that Saul needs to answer. And I wonder if Saul was a little afraid to ask who the me was, although I think he already knew. I think deep down inside, as he was processing through his anger and frustration, trying to push away the testimony of Stephen, the conclusion of Stephen, the stoning of Stephen, the fact that he participated in it all, and the, the fact that he knew it was all true from his own studies, verified from his own understanding of the Bible. I wonder if he knew it was Jesus all along. And notice in verse five, he does respond and he says, who are you, Lord? And that word Lord is a kurios. It's, a, it's in the Greek, it speaks of a submission to a king, to a Lord. It says, who are you, Lord? And the Lord responds, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And then he says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. And this is one of the reasons I believe that Paul knew what was happening here. Saul knew what was happening in his life. He's been, and Jesus uses this phrase, kicking against the goads. It's a hard phrase for us to understand today because not many of us uh, have seen, held, or even know what a goad is. But a goad was an eight foot long stick that was sharpened at the end that was used to move oxen along when they were doing their work and paused and didn't want to do their work anymore. 
And so they would be working out in the fields and someone would be walking alongside of them. They'd get distracted, start eating, start not stop in their tracks, and they would be poked very gently with the goad to move them on. Poked gently to move them on, sometimes not so gently. With Saul, this illustration is used that there has been a prodding of the Holy Spirit in his life for quite some time now, and he has been fighting it which reminds us that there is a lot going on under the surface in people's lives that we don't know anything about. It might be coming out in anger, and it might be coming out in frustration, and it might be coming out in resistance, and it might be coming out in a variety of different ways, but truly under the surface, the man, the woman that you're ministering to, the son, the daughter, is fighting the work of God. That what you shared in planting a seed is working. And what God is doing to water that is working. And there's a fighting and a fighting. That is why not only do walls of pride get built between you and people, and they want to separate from you, get mad at you. Sometimes you're the object of their anger, but also their hearts just get so hard. It doesn't happen overnight, but it does happen through a long series of kicking against the goads what we might refer to as resisting the Holy Spirit. What we might say is fighting against God. And we can surmise what these goads were for, for, for Saul here. I'm sure, number one, it was the powerful testimony of Stephen. And secondly, I think watching a young man die for no reason, be murdered right in front of his eyes by, in the name of religion, in the name of God. Not only that, but this young man died. He had the appearance of an angel, the Bible says. Not only that, this young man died with truth on his lips. Not only that, this young man died, not only with truth, but he died sounding very similar to Jesus. Very gracious and forgiving. Doesn't try to defend himself. I think another goad that Saul was fighting were all the testimonies of the Christians he was attacking as they prayed for him or accepted it or allowed him to do whatever he wanted to do to their families and their lives. And it's true, church, there are many people who seem hard to reach, the intelligent, the religious. I mean, I think of how many times a testimony has been shared in our own congregation, maybe even from you, where you grew up in a very religious home in a very religious church and your attachment was more to the religion than it was to the God that inspired that religion. And religion, what I mean by that is just a system of belief that takes the place of a personal relationship with God. And many people are attached to their church. They're attached to their religion. And don't think that's outside of this room either. It can happen here as well where we can be attached to a set of beliefs or a system of thought or a family of churches more than we're attached to the intimacy and closeness of Jesus who gave himself for us. And the testimony is, you know, when I started hearing the Bible and we started praying and singing, I've grown more in knowing God in just a few months than I did in all these religions. But it was hard for you. It was challenging for you. You put up a fight. You kicked against the goads because you had to come to a conclusion in your own life 
And, and I remember talking to my dad about this. I don't remember the exact words, but I remember it this way. It was like my dad, uh, as an older man, looked me in the eye and said, are, are you telling me, are you saying to me that I've lived my whole life wrong? And it was a hard answer to weave to my dad to listen, to basically say, yes, dad. As good and as upright and as moral as you are, you must be born again. There's just no other way to which my father received that. And I know I'll be reunited with him very soon as he has gone home to be with the Lord many years ago. Like the truth, as hard as it is to deliver, will set a person free and will penetrate their hearts. And although we don't get an immediate response and that's discouraging, we have to remember there are other things going on we don't see, we don't know, and we trust God with the end result. And it's important we share the truth. It's important we yield to the truth. Even though there are hard people, there are people that are hard to reach and hard people that are hard to reach. Those that are kicking against the goads, the sharpened stick of conviction of the Holy Spirit, the sharpened stick of their own conscience and the truth of the gospel. I mean, look, the, the gospel message, the revelation of our separation from God is not the hard part of the gospel. I mean, most people, even though they kind of say, but I'm a good person, they're always comparing themselves to some horrific person. It's like, you know, I'm a good person, but compared to so-and-so, you know, I might, I might have problems, but compared to so-and-so, I'm super good. Well, in that process of thinking, there's an acknowledgement that they know they're not as good as they could be. There's an acknowledgement that like the gospel, the fact that we are sinners, it may be hard to accept, but it's not hard to understand that we have failed God, we've separated from God, we've wandered from God, we've denied our creator, on and on the list goes. That, that's not the biggest barrier to, the gospel, to, to someone believing. The biggest barrier is they're kicking against the goats. They're prideful, clinging to their own way of life. And that could be you today. Could be you listening on the radio or watching online, that kicking against the goads, as interesting as a phrase it is, is exactly the manner of your life. You're fighting everything there is that is drawing you to God. Everything that's been done, everything that's been shared. And like Saul, you know the truth is right. And like Saul, it makes sense to you but also like Saul here, you're fighting so hard against the truth because it's penetrating and you simply don't want to change your lives. But Saul encourages us today that God has a salvation plan for every single person on the planet earth. And there is no one, absolutely no one outside the reach of God's love. Notice now in verse six, back in Acts nine, the response is he trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one, but they led him by the hand and brought him in Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So this man breathing in and out threats and murder in a 
just a brief moment, an instantaneous moment, he is now astonished and trembled. That's how fast God can work. And he's asking for directions. And I love this. In this moment, Saul, I believe, is born again. In this moment. He is saved in an instant. Which always leads to the question, wait a minute, pastor. You're making salvation way too simple here. And too quick. It's got to be harder than that. And I would say to you, no. It is that simple and quick. Because, you know, Things have been added to salvation over the years that need to be removed. You say, well, wait a minute. Doesn't he have to say certain words? No. I mean, doesn't he have to take a class to learn how to be saved? No. Doesn't he have to join a church? No. Doesn't he have to sit before the elders and be grilled and pass a test in order to be saved? No, 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 and no. The work of salvation is thoroughly a work of God. To be born again is a work of God in your life. You know, one of the most common one in our culture today is that salvation can happen after you change your life. And so we have such a great emphasis on the outward, the outward, the outward. Stop this, don't do that, don't start, you know, all of this behavior modification. But you know, many people over the years have a lifestyle of behavior modification and have never been changed on the inside has never really fully surrendered their life to Christ. Never yielded through repentance and acknowledgement of their sin. It's important that you realize that you've sinned against a holy and righteous God, that Jesus Christ came to die for your sins, that he rose again the third day. Jesus Christ is alive now, drawing you, perhaps even been goading you for some time. And today is the day you stop fighting and kicking against the goads. Because, you know, as the oxen would be proked, they would kick away. It's like, no, I, I am set in my ways. And yet the master behind him would move it around to make sure that the ox did what they were supposed to do. And so God will creatively draw you to himself through the conviction of the Holy Spirit so that you might surrender your life. Now, in other Bible studies, we do know that there is a broader definition in the scriptures of salvation. I'm going to give to you a very brief understanding of that, but if you're interested in a more in-depth study, I went through these words that I'm going to share with you right now, this process of salvation, in much more depth. Like I spent weeks on just the definition of these words that I'm going to give it to you in about 60 seconds. And so you can study more in the book of Romans. You can look these words up in the search bar of our website or on our app. But for, for us today, let's just look at some layers of salvation. Number one, salvation, a theological word to describe the instantaneous act of salvation is the word justification. Justification is the beginning of new life for the believer. So in one sense, salvation is an instantaneous act. And we refer to that theologically as justification. That is a legal term that refers to the erasing of sin and shame and guilt through the blood of Jesus Christ and gives us a right standing, a legal statement that gives us a right standing before God. A great way to remember this word is just to let it sound out. So justification could be defined as 
just as if I never sinned. That's the instantaneous act immediately. However, that begins a process. And so salvation, on the other hand, can also refer to an ongoing change. There's another big word that we use to describe that. It's the word sanctification. And it's this confusion between justification and sanctification that creates so much angst in Christians. Some of you right now, you're just like, one of the reasons why you doubt your salvation, one of the reasons why you think, man, I can't believe it. Look at my life. I'm still doing this. I'm still thinking that. Uh, One of the reasons why you begin to doubt your salvation is you forget that there is a process of change taking place in your life. That God is truly working on the inside. What he has begun in the spirit, he is faithful to complete it. It's just not completed yet. And there is an ongoing work of God changing your life. Listen, if you weren't upset about different sins and things in your life, then I would say you've never been justified because only believers care about the struggle in their life. Only believers care about the ongoing bondage of sin why they seem to never be able to leave it behind, why it seems to creep up at times, why at times there are temptations that overwhelm them. It's the sanctification process, the ongoing change of you and me into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And this is the truth. You're just not there yet. Anyone amen that? You're just not there yet. And I'm not either. And you know what's happening right now? There is a battle going on inside of you between the Spirit of God and your flesh. And your flesh. The Spirit lusts against the flesh, the flesh against the Spirit, so that you don't do the things that you wish. Some of you are living more in the flesh, like Romans chapter 7. Others of you are living in Romans chapter 8 and in victory. Some of you are going 7, 8, 7, 8, 7, 8, 7, 8. And it's just like, oh, Lord. Help me, deliver me from this body of death, like Paul would later say in Romans. That battle of the flesh is real. And when difficult times come, many of us will revert to our flesh. Now, if you're new to the Bible, remember, or for the first time you're learning, when I use the word flesh, I'm not speaking about like our skin and bones. On occasion, the Bible might use the word that way, Uh, to describe someone's body. But most of the time, when the word flesh is used in the Bible, it's used to describe your default when difficult times arise. Your default. Or as one author said it, I adopted it as my own. He described the flesh as your old sinful habit patterns. So instead of responding the way God would lead you to respond, love, joy, mercy, kindness, gentleness, the fruit of the Spirit, You respond like you have in previous times apart from God. This is especially alive in those of us that were born again later in life. Because when you were born again later in life, you developed an incredible habit of living in sin. And so your responses were always sin, 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 sin. And in the moment you were justified, you were born again, you became a new creation in Christ, Old things have passed away, behold, behold, all things become new. Except when you look in the mirror, you look exactly the same. And if they did a MRI on your head, your brain is the same. And it has all of these habits that have been developed. 
you know, something silly, like you're driving down the highway here in Colorado, it's I-25, but wherever you're listening, you can pick your own highway or wherever you are, and you get cut off, and as you get cut off, your immediate response is to cuss the guy out. And I mean, you're just going to town, words you haven't said in forever. And then finally, you catch yourself, and you go, what am I doing? I can't believe it. And you repent real briefly there, and you go, you start beating yourself up, and then you move on, and you get to work. Except that you forgot that what you used to do is not just cuss them out, but then you would speed up and then cut them off. But you're not doing that anymore because God's growing you. And some of you are not cussing out loud, you're cussing in your head. God's growing you. You're not responding the spiritual way. I mean, the spiritual way is, oh, you cut me off? Well, please have the rest of the road. Would you like my cup of coffee? You know, like, like the spiritual way would just be, it's no big deal. Why do I care? What, what's the, why, why would I, I like, you, the spiritual thing is like, okay, Lord, I didn't like this, but let's go on with the day. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. And you can think of that in many different ways of how the flesh is pressing in. Sanctification, you're being changed. And then there's a third word, is that, that is the final essence of salvation is a word known as glorification. And let me just let you in on the good news. There is coming a day when you will shed this earthly body, you will be in the presence of the Lord, and you will never ever again deal with the flesh or sin for all of eternity. Now that is something to look forward to. That's coming. And that's the word glorification, where you will be in the presence of God because what he started, he has promised to finish. And so Saul follows the directions, but he's not breathing murder anymore when he finally arrives to Damascus because God can take you where you think you're going, but change you on the way. And you'll end up where you want to go, but you'll end up a different woman and a different man. And I'm sure there's a major revolution going on in the mind of Saul right now. Uh, an immediate understanding of everything that he's learned. I mean, he's going to grow. He's going to understand it. He, he's going to grasp it. He goes through the process just like we did. He's not superhuman. And as a matter of fact, as you read through the life of Saul, who becomes Paul, as you read through his letters, it seems like the farther and longer he walked with the Lord, the more acute his understanding of sin was in his life. And he's like, man, I, I've been walking with the Lord all these years, but I feel farther from God than I ever have been because there's this keen awareness of the holiness of God and the unholiness of man. And that's not unusual. If you've found that in your own personal walk, it's like you see more of God's holiness, but also in light of his holiness, you see more of your unholiness. His whole world was turned upside down and a new world is opening to him. He goes on his way angry, uh, eyes wide open, letters from the authority, destroy the church, these believers, followers of the way in the name of God. But how does he end up going into Damascus? Blind and being led like a baby. Because God can humble you in a second. It doesn't take much for God. And it'll be painful and dramatic that God can do that work of humbling in your life. You can too, by the way. You can humble yourself before the mighty hand of God and he'll lift you up. Or you can continue to kick against the goads and God will humble you. But humility is the end game of God. Humility. Humility in our lives means we see God for who he is and we see ourselves for who we are. 
And it leads us to a life of worship and appreciation and adoration. And that's where Saul, that's what begins here on the road to Damascus. And maybe in the blindness and the darkness of it all, being led into the city, not even know what gate he's going in or anything like that. Maybe it's this verse that God brought to his heart. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength, mount up like wing, with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary, shall walk and not faint. It's Isaiah 40, verse 31. You know, he's going to be three days. He doesn't know when. He doesn't know what's going on. His whole world's been rocked, and he doesn't know how it's going to end. We do. He doesn't yet. And so he just sits there in darkness, waiting for a bright light, waiting for what God's going to do. And again, when it happens, it's going to be very quick, just like in your life. As you're waiting on the Lord, the answer from God is going to come very quickly, very clearly, very thoroughly. And today we're reminded no one's beyond the reach of God. Amen? Amen. So Father, thank you for the reminder today in the life of Saul, the reminder of our own lives, God, and the work that you want to accomplish. We pray for your spirit to make it, come clean, make it become clear to us. And as you receive us and our prayers and adoration, our remembrance of your body and blood today, be glorified among us in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Church. For prayer, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. To listen to this message in its entirety or to join us for our live stream services, visit us online at calvaryco.church or download our free Calvary Church app. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.